Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, we just don't have hostile worker uprisings like we used to. I mean, we don't have to, thanks to things like labor unions and the ability to strike. Today marks the 130th anniversary of the deadly Battle of Homestead. It's probably the most violent conflict between steelworkers and management over low wages. Historian Mara Bainbridge is a board member of the Battle of Homestead Foundation, and she's here to talk about why its legacy still matters today. It's Wednesday, July 6th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. So if you grew up here, I guess you probably heard about the Homestead Steel Strike. I am sure I did in some social studies class, some history class. I don't remember. I don't remember most of the details, at least. Uh, But could you give us a general breakdown of, like, what happened and the big players at that time? Like, what were the sides? Who was was fighting? Sure. So you've probably, well, you've definitely heard of some of the sides, right? So um, at the time, we're talking 1892, there's steel mills where the waterfront is now today in Homestead. There's the amalgamated iron and steel workers, that that's the union fighting for recognition in the Homestead Works. And then there's the Carnegie Steel Corporation owned by Andrew Carnegie. Probably familiar with that guy. I've heard of him. Right, right. <laughs> um, and then Frick, Henry Clay Frick. And the big deal um, happening at the time is that the price of steel, so this, there's a sliding scale wage system, which meant that The amount that folks got paid in the Homestead Steel Works was based on how much steel is selling for. Mm -hmm. And the Carnegie Steel Corporation has basically a monopoly on steel at this time, so they can set the prices. Yeah. So if it's a sliding scale wage system, then they're basically setting the wages artificially on that too. Mm. Um, So the workers didn't love that. Yeah, that's shady. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely (laughs) shady. Um, So basically, Carnegie Steel is trying to lower the uh, sliding scale. So they're they're arguing that because there's no top end to that sliding scale, then there shouldn't be a bottom end to it either. Workers are not okay with that. And they also want to um, maintain recognition of their union. So since Carnegie Steel Corporation is running all these other local mills. They don't want any unions because then they kind of have to have unions in all the uh, mills. So that that one mill was one of the only ones with that had a union at the time. Yeah, the Homestead Works. Yeah. So I guess when it was time for them to negotiate, what led up to the strike? Sure. Yeah. So Carnegie and Frick, his you know, people often call him his henchman. That's probably one of those other guys we remember from history class, right? They um, kind of had an idea of what's going on here, right? So in the mill, we're gearing up production, kind of anticipating that there might be a strike. So we still are stockpiling products so we can keep selling through a strike, stuff like that. Um, And Frick goes so far as to build a wall around the homestead works and and they call it- Like a fort. Yeah, they called it Fort Frick, <laughs> right? So we talk about um, labor conflicts sort of as strikes, but this was a lockout, right? The workers are locked out of the mill. They can't get in. They couldn't work if they wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. At this time in Homestead, it's like 
about a third of people living in Homestead are working in the mills. And so that's people's whole families. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was normal at that time. Yeah. And that's like the whole community, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of just neighborhood solidarity with workers in the mills. And so since they're locked out, everyone's taking up arms, right? And the whole borough or the whole all of Homestead's on strike. So everyone's striking and talking trash. Then we get to July 6th, the date we're commemorating today. What happens? There's two barges that come down the river and they're carrying 300 Pinkerton detectives in quotes here. They're really just like hired guys to sort of break the strike to get in there. Are they like are they like police or they're like agents? Are they like Yeah, so there's a lot of um these sort of like private detective agencies at this time and they're really in the business of strike breaking and they're working for these capitalists we we see it in a lot of other labor strikes they go by names of like detectives or guards but really they're just like hired guns so on july 6th these 300 pinkerton detectives guards whatever we want to call them um they're come up the Monongahela River on a tugboat. Well, a tugboat's pulling these barges. And like I said, since all of Homestead is is ready to fight, um, they, they met them at the river, right? Is, it, is this like in the middle of the night? No, this is like in the morning. Okay, I just need to set the scene. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so they're blocking the Pinkertons from getting into Homestead. They're um, doing things like bringing a Civil War cannon and, like, launching it towards the Pinkertons trying to get in. And they're, you know, setting, like, a raft on fire and sort of floating it out (laughs) towards the barges. Really just, like, whatever they can do to prevent them. And the Pinkertons, I think, you know, the story goes that they maybe, like, didn't all the way know what they signed up for. I, I, I mean, I feel like cannons come out and you can't know what you signed <laughs> up for. You think you're just breaking a strike. Right. And and remember, right, that they're detectives in name, right? So there, there's a little bit of deniability there, too. What What gave the workers, like, such confidence, I guess, to act? You know, I, I mean, yeah. I just, sure. I feel like if that's how many jobs are there really that people are trained for in, you know, 1890s? feel like if you work at a steel mill, you know, that's kind of what you know. Yeah, I think um, most of the towns working here, that's a, a really huge employer. Mm-hmm. And the danger of the work in general is really important too, right? So if you if you might die or, or lose a limb or something just at a regular day in your workplace in a steel mill, then maybe the danger of fighting Pinkertons isn't that much different than a a regular day in your life, you know? So what happens? How does this all shake out? So the workers, um, they did end up beating the Pinkertons, right? They're defeated. They're marched out of town. They're put on trains out of town, back to where they came from. And then Mm -hmm. the National Guard comes in uh, six days later on July 12th, sort of, this is another piece of a lot of these uh, strike or, or labor conflict stories at the time. Were they were they only fighting for that one day? Yeah. Like so after that, the battle was, happens okay. on July sixth, 
Um, And then workers are sort of controlling homestead for that next six days. And then Pennsylvania National Guard comes in. Again, we get this narrative of them restoring order um, Mm -hmm. that happens often. And then replacement workers are are brought in to Carnegie Steelworks, Homestead Steelworks. And sort of the strike effort, the union effort, loses steam. And then... There's not a union in the steel mill until, I think, the 30s, 1937. It took that long. Um, yeah, to get a union back after the Battle of Homestead. Wow. So how did it change labor, labor organization here in Pittsburgh and just in America? I think that um, within labor circles and, and definitely within organizing, while it the workers ultimately were defeated, it, it is still this really powerful tale simply because the players are so huge, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's really an underdog story of taking on Andrew Carnegie, right, and, and Carnegie Seal Corporation and winning, ultimately winning that day. Um, so it, it showed that that was possible. And I, I think that yeah. that was a kind of rallying point for a lot of other um, labor struggles that are happening at this similar time. Like Pullman happens about a year later. Yeah, that huge railroad strike and boycott. Yeah, there's a lot of similar labor struggles that go on around this time. Yeah, a lot of these struggles are still happening today. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's where a lot of our rights come from, right? The weekend, mm-hmm. worker compensation, all these sort of things. And I mean, you can still see the remnants of all of this at the waterfront today. If folks haven't been there in a while, it is super interesting to poke around the waterfront and sort of see the ma- machinery that's still there. So there's like a 12,000 ton press and there's a crane and there's... Um, the iconic stacks, right, of, of the waterfront. And I think that's another thing that we just sort of take for granted growing up in the Pittsburgh region. There's a lot of, like, industrial equipment just hanging around. But at the waterfront, some of them have sort of signs just slapped on them. Um, and I would encourage people to, you know, think about the language that's on them. A lot of those narratives are about... Um, nation building and like the ships that were built from the steel that came from homestead works and not necessarily the people who worked at homestead works building that steel or or building those ships or anything like that right um so it's worth a worth a walk around the perimeter for sure right i mean i've been to the waterfront you know but i didn't know there was this whole bloody battle on top of the ground where you know tj maxx is now yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's um, a 12,000 ton press in the Lowe's parking lot. And I've heard that, you know, it was just like too expensive and too heavy to reinforce the roads to take it out. So mm-hmm. they just left it there and now there's a sign on it. Well, so I know you've studied this for a long time. If you take a step back, why do you think it's important to look back on this and for it to be more universally taught, not just in Pittsburgh, but everywhere? So this is like a, a, a really hot period in labor history and, and in kind of, this is not the only place where these are kind of the working conditions, right? So we we have, we learn about kind of these um, 
robber barons of the time, right? And that's often, I think, the historical narrative, right? That there's these really rich guys, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, who are driving industry, or, or we might have narratives like that, right? Really what they're doing is exploiting their workers. Yeah, making their fortunes off of these workers. And we have sort of modern day versions of this too. Right, we have your Amazons that are denying their workers' rights and, and accumulating ungodly amounts of money. And yeah. it, it's similar stories. And so I think that is what, to me, is so important about learning and maintaining this history is that it's not over, right? We're, we're living really similar narratives. And if we can reflect on how those similarities, then I think not only are we learning a, a more accurate history, right? It's not like just these kind of great men's stories. Um, we're learning about the, the worker power, right? The, mm -hmm. the cannons that they're launching and the meeting the Pinkertons, right? But we're also... It, it's inspirational to know that those workers fought for rights and we can do that today too. And I think it also sort of gives us a responsibility to keep pushing the ball forward, right? And, and keep building a more just world because we have to understand that, that those rights were fought for um, and not just given. 130 years since the Battle of Homestead. Thank you so much, Mara, for joining us on CityCast Pittsburgh. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you've got some free time this morning, you can catch Mara and a bunch of other speakers at the Pump House in Homestead. They're drawing a special little presentation starting at 930. Here's some more news. UPMC's Burn Center reported treating 13 people for injuries related to fireworks over the weekend, including a six-month-old and someone else with a severe eye injury. Most were locals and four were transferred from surrounding counties. You guys have to stop with the fireworks on the 4th of July. Like, just stop. The Abolitionist Law Center just filed 62 complaints against Judge Anthony Mariani. He's a common pleas court judge here. He's been serving since 2005. The ALC has had a court watcher monitoring a bunch of courtrooms since just before the pandemic. And they say Mariani got flagged right out the gate for being a, quote, mean, abusive, bullying judge, end quote, especially against black men, older people and people with mental or behavioral health issues. And just a note to anyone reeling from the gun violence over the weekend, I went to college in Akron, Ohio, so my heart is certainly with uh, the family of Jalen Walker and everyone out there protesting, plus the mass shooting right outside of Chicago. It's really hard out there, so everyone, please take care of yourselves. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you enjoyed the show, five stars. Give us five stars and a, a glowing review. Plus, subscribe to our morning newsletter. That's all we ask. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. So we'll see you then. It was, I, I got like mercilessly, uh booed it wasn't even teased just booed every class like they'd ask like where i was from and i'd be like pittsburgh and everybody would boo throw things <laughs>